So, one of the things that I want you to know as I begin this morning is I like doctors. And that's kind of a good thing. There are several doctors in the church. I went golfing with one doctor on Friday, and I like doctors. They're good people. But sometimes I avoid doctors with everything that's inside of me. Literally, kind of. A couple of years ago, I had this really bad, weird knee pain. And uh, some days after running, I would be limping and some friends would say, why don't you go talk to the doctor? And I'm like, I'm not going to the doctor. And they would say, why aren't you going to the doctor? I'm not going to the doctor because the doctor could tell me there's something wrong with my knee and I shouldn't be running. And they would look at me like I'm an idiot because it kind of fits, right? Why wouldn't you go to the doctor so you could fix whatever's going on? But I didn't want to know. I didn't want to go to the doctor because I didn't want the doctor to tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing. I wanted control over my own health. And if I was going to be stupid, I was going to be tough and bear through it. And I know that's crazy. But sometimes I think that we like to live life this way, don't we? We like to live life where we don't want anybody to tell us anything that may disrupt what we think is the reality or who may have some kind of authority over us and to tell us a problem that we may have. I definitely didn't want to go lay down on some table and have the doctor x-ray my knee or to give me a scan and tell me that there was a meniscus tear or something like that. I didn't want to know the knowledge that that doctor could have by examining me. And you know, the reality is, uh, there are people in my family, there are people in my life that kind of live life this way. There are people that tell me that they think they're diabetic, but they don't want to go to the doctor to get diagnosed as diabetic because they don't want to change the way they're living. Or somebody may tell me that they stuck their arm in the thing at Walmart and their blood pressure was just sky high, but they won't go to the doctor to let the doctor manage their high blood pressure. That their pains and their problems are plaguing them and could potentially lead to some really, really bad things in their life. But they don't want to give somebody else the authority over how they should be living. There's this really weird thing with inside of us that I think is in all of us where we don't like giving over that authority to somebody else. And as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ, one of the things that we know is that it's not like when we were saved that our sin nature went away, did it? Don't you wish that's what happened? Don't you wish that when you were saved that your sin nature and anything that you're struggling with just went away, that God just zapped it and boom, you were holy and perfect and that's the way we live life? But it, it doesn't go away and there are remnants of that sin nature. Now we, Paul tells us, that because of the gospel we have the power over the sin nature, but that we are in this process and we're always overcoming and we're always working and we're always killing the old self but the old self is also always raising up its head and one of the ways that I think that the old self raises its head and these sin patterns raise its head is that that old self really just wants authority 
and drives us to this place to where we are the ones who are supposed to be the authority over our own lives. And this was part of the first sin in the garden, wasn't it? What did Satan say to Eve? That you can be like God. You can have that kind of authority. Think about it this morning. All I have to do to kind of get some of you ruffled, ruffled and bothered is just mention the mention one word boss. Some of you, I mentioned the word boss and you're like, oh, it's Sunday. Come on. I don't have to deal with him or her until tomorrow. Some of you, if I was uh, if I said the title of the sermon was going to be, hey, how do we submit to parents? Half of you teenagers would have been sick this morning. I got a stomach ache. That pollen's really getting to me this morning. Yes. See? See what I mean? <laughs> and, and all I would have to do with, with some of your children also is just to ask about their teachers. And, and some of them would just be wonderful, but there would be others that would say, oh man, this teacher drives me crazy. We all struggle with this idea of authority. And what I want to tell you this morning, that if we follow those desires, if we follow the desires that we are to be the authority, the ultimate authority in our own life, and if we let that pattern and that, that thing inside of us grow, that it will cause a shipwreck. It will cause a shipwreck and that we will head into a direction to where we are, are fruitless and we're faithless in our, in our existence as a Christian. You see, when we encounter Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, we encounter the sovereign king of the universe who knows everything about us. And because he is the sovereign, loving king of the universe, when we see Jesus, one of the things that happens when we encounter Jesus is that we become aware of our own flaws. And so we respond to Him in different ways. As Christians, when we read the Word, when we read the Gospels, when we read the letters, the inspired Word of God to us, and we encounter the very words of God, we do one of two things. We either stand over that Word and we dictate to the Word what we want to listen to and what we want to believe, or we stand under it and we let God's Word dictate to us what we need to hear and how we should live. And brothers and sisters, that gets so difficult at sometimes because we want to be the ones in control. We want to be the authority. Now, as we jump into our text this morning, this, this passage is kind of like a hinge passage. It's kind of transitioning us to the next part of Mark. And what we have been seeing, if you remember back, what we've been seeing in our study of Mark is that Jesus is demonstrating as He's beginning His ministry, as He's starting His ministry, that Jesus has been demonstrating His authority and His power. And what we have seen as Jesus is going is that we have seen that Jesus has authority and power over the law and over all any, any religious 
expectations that Jesus trumps all of that because he is God's very own son. And as he is interacting with the Pharisees, we see Jesus standing firm and dictating to them what the word of God truly says. We see Jesus as he is on the scene here in the Gospel of Mark. We see Jesus has power, has power over sickness and over death. And we see Jesus doing many, many, many miracles and he is healing people. He is raising them. And also we see Jesus and His authority His authority over demons. His authority over spiritual oppression. And that Jesus has these interactions with the demons. And we've been studying this for the past couple of months. And when Jesus interacts, He just casts the demon out. And they obey Him because He has all authority and all power. And as we get to this section... Of Mark, and we're getting ready to transition. We see Jesus and all these things that he's doing, and we see these crowds and these various people are responding to him in different ways. And I want us to be thinking, I want us to be thinking as we look at the text this morning. I want us to be thinking and bringing to mind what we talked about last week at Easter. We talked about who this Christ is. The majesty, the glory, the sovereignty of this Christ. And I want us to, as we look at this passage and as we dig in and look at some things in this passage, that we have to have in mind how great this Christ truly is. That He is the co-creator of the universe and he is holding all things together that is the Christ that we worship and that is the Christ that we serve and he has all authority and we as Christians would do well to submit to that authority and Jesus just so that you know from a point of backing up we just We just came off of two studies in the book of Mark. One where Jesus is ruffling the Pharisees' feathers. Jesus is having this interaction with the Pharisees. You remember Jesus was walking through the grain field. He was picking, his disciples were picking the heads of grain and they were rolling them and eating them. And the Pharisees were accusing them of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, instead of like apologizing or retreating, Jesus ends up at the end of this interaction telling them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the ruler of the Sabbath. I'm the ruler of the law. I created the law. It's mine. I get to interpret it. And then, if you remember, in Gary's message, Jesus then doubles down. They go from the fields to Jesus goes into the synagogue and heals a man with a withered hand. This just escalating this conflict to a fever pitch. And so today, today, as we're looking at this text, we're going to back up in a second, but what you're going to see... I think what Mark is doing in this section is that this hinged section, he's not only summarizing, but he's wanting to make sure that we understand the extreme responses to Christ's authority, the extreme responses to Christ's authority. Remember, one of the things that Mark does all throughout his gospel, and we need to know this to understand and to read and unpack, is that Mark will give us this 
just this majestic view of who Christ is. These majestic claims of the truth of Christ. And then, and then there is a response that we are expected to respond to this. Brothers and sisters, there is no way that we can encounter Jesus, the sovereign of the universe, and not have a response. And so this is how Mark writes this gospel. And we're going to see this morning, we're going to see this morning how various groups respond to the authority of Christ. In the first group, I want to reach back and I want you to remember how the Pharisees responded to Jesus and his claims of authority. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So the first response, the first extreme response that we're going to look at is that the Pharisees, when they come in contact with Jesus, that the thing that wells up inside of them is the desire to destroy him, to get him out of the way, to eliminate him, because he is disrupting something that they are doing. And that we know that the Pharisees, they are the experts of the law. They are the religious people. They are looked to as the brightest of the brightest, the best of the best. And Jesus, Jesus threatens their very existence. Now, Jesus doesn't threaten their existence because maybe they're confused. Jesus never piles on a Pharisee when a Pharisee comes to him and asks him a legitimate question. Jesus doesn't threaten them because of their fervency to keep the law. Jesus never, never begrudges or, or, or goes after a Pharisee because of they fervently want to please God. That's never a reason Jesus goes after them. When Jesus goes after them, He goes after them because of their hypocrisy. Jesus never goes after them because they are desiring to get more knowledge about who God is. Or about who He is. One of my favorite accounts in the New Testament is when Jesus, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And I just love how tender and patient and pointed Jesus is with Nicodemus. And I just think it's a wonderful thing, and, and there's an assumption here, we don't know for sure, but Nicodemus shows up again, right? That here you have this Pharisee, this man of the law, who's coming to Jesus, and there's this great conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Nicodemus comes and he has these questions, and Jesus sits down and explains to him what it means to be born again. And then when Jesus is killed, we have Nicodemus show back up. Caring for the body of Jesus. And I can't help but think that Nicodemus was converted. So that we have a, a man in the midst of all this chaos and craziness. Who sees Jesus for who he is. And Jesus taking the time to draw him in. But that's unusual with this bunch. This bunch is angry. They're out to get him. And they ultimately convince the authorities to put him to death. Because Jesus is disrupting their way of life. Jesus is disrupting their ideology. 
Jesus is disrupting the way that they want to do religion. Jesus is telling them, you just worship the shadow, I am the fulfillment of the shadow, and things are new because of me. He is destroying the old way, and He is marching forward in a new path, and these Pharisees can't stand it. And here's the reality. I think the Pharisees understood quite a bit more than what we give them credit for. If the Pharisees just felt like they could mold what they were doing and what Jesus was teaching, I think they would have been okay. But they understood the claims of Christ as the sovereign of the universe, and they understood the implications of that would be that they needed to bow down and worship and to follow and to go wherever He led. They understood that, and they were saying, no way. They had a major issue with the authority that Christ was claiming. And I want to ask you something. What about you? I'm assuming nobody in here wants to destroy Jesus. However, even as a Christian, even as a Christian, because that sin nature remains in us, one of the things that we know as our life as a Christian is that there are times when we are reading and when we consider the authority of Christ in our life that we as Christians bristle. That we want to do things our way. And that we spend a lot of times, I think this is a huge problem in the church, the global church, is that the global church wants to take Christ and mold Him into an image that is acceptable. And that's not who Christ is. Christ stands over us and wants to mold us into His image. It's the direct opposite. And I think there is something inside of us that bristles and kicks against that. And we think that our way is better than His. And we just kind of do these mind tricks to flip things around to keep Him at bay so that we can still have uh, some authority. And I think this is in all of us. We want Him to fit our box. And Jesus doesn't fit in a box, does He? Notice, notice what's happening in verse 7 and 8. Notice there's another group and they're reacting to Jesus and His claims of authority. It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with His disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond the Jordan the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that He was doing and they came out. And Mark is really going at great lengths to tell us that there was a great crowd, a large number of people. Not only that, but he gives us these locations to let us know they were coming from all over. And if we were to have a map and to see some of them were coming from quite some distances. And so one of the things when I read the Bible, I like to let my imagination run wild. And, and, and I like to think about sometimes putting myself in this context. And could you imagine if you were here, if you were in this city and you had people from everywhere just coming to see Jesus? Coming from all over. 
from all the roads that were leading into the city, you had people coming and they were coming to see Jesus. When Miles and I were out in the desert, it was Jeep Week. And so you had people coming from everywhere for Jeep Week. And, and they were coming to see the, some of them were coming to see the new Jeep. And so there was a buzz about the new electric Jeep and the torque it had and what you can climb over if you have a lot of torque. And I don't know anything about cars, so that means something to some of you. But it was a buzz about all the coolness of this thing. Multiply that by thousands and you have all these people coming into town and it's just a buzz about Jesus and who He was. In fact, there were so many that were coming that Jesus had to leave the city, leave the synagogue, go out to the beach outside right there by the Sea of Galilee. He had to go out so that all the people could be there. There were too many people to, so that he could just remain in the city and remain in the synagogue. And notice this. There were so many people, he told the disciples that a boat should stand ready because as they were pressing and coming to him and the people were so large, he was going to need a way to escape to get away from the crowds. You understand the magnitude of what was going on. There were all these people that were coming out. And what I want you to see, what Mark is sure to tell us, is why these people were coming out to see Jesus. In verse 8 it says, there's two, well there's two reasons, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. And in verse 8 it tells us this, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and they came to him. One of the things that's interesting that I think that we need to at least note in our minds. And I've already said this, and so hopefully you're tracking with me. Who was the religious authority of the day? Who was the best and the brightest? The Pharisees, right? Do you think the Pharisees were encouraging people to come out to Jesus? No. So what you have happening is that something is going on. Something is going on, so all these people who probably normally followed the direction of the Pharisees and looked to them for their guidance, something was going on. This Jesus was so great. What they had heard about Him was so great that they were willing to forsake any of those warnings and to go out and to find and to follow Jesus. And it tells us that they were doing that because they heard of all that He was doing. And I want to say... That when we look at this crowd, I think there's two groups of people in this group I want to call the fair weather fans. Do you know what a fair weather fan is? A fair weather fan, we use that word to describe uh, people who follow sports teams and who follow winners. So, for example, um, if the Atlanta Braves won the uh, uh, championship uh, baseball, became champions, then all of a sudden you would see all these new Atlanta Braves fans. They're just fair weather fans. And then if they lose next year, they're not fans anymore. So what I'm saying is going to happen is that next year when Tennessee wins the National Football Championship, the Collegiate Football Championship, you're going to see people come out of the woodworks to follow the Vols. Probably not really going to happen. My youngest son is a fair weather fan. I raised him to be a Vol fan and they've been so bad for so long that he has now proclaimed he's an Oklahoma fan. That's a fair weather fan. And we're looking at church discipline for him a little later. And you may say, Lewis, how can you call these people fair weather fans? And I, there are a couple of 
ways that we know this. But one is this. That in this Gospel, in Mark, when Jesus starts to talk about how it's going to be hard to follow Him, and when He starts to talk about suffering, we also see this in John chapter 6. When Jesus' messages turn hard, the crowds leave. Not only this, but at Jesus' greatest point of need, when Jesus was on the cross, the crowds went from Hosanna to crucify. They're fair-weather crowds. Their desire is to be with the team that wins. Jesus, in this instance, is winning. He is healing people. He is demonstrating great power. And so their desire is to be around Him. But the minute, the minute that they sense that something else is going on, they're gone. And the second group, I think, are people who are sick and who are in need and who want to be healed. And I think that some of these people probably hear the message and, and become believers. I think that some of them, though, all they're looking for, all they're looking for is to have their life be remedied. Maybe they're lame, maybe they're crippled, maybe they can't walk, maybe they're blind, maybe there are other things going on, and all they want to do, look at verse 10. They're pressing him in order to touch him. That the crowds are becoming so great that they're coming in and they're pressing and they're pressing and they're pressing, and all they want to do is just to be healed and I don't begrudge that. And listen, just a side note, we have a loving, gracious, heavenly Father who does heal. But I want you to ask this question again. As we see this crowd and as we see the reason that they're around. Is this impulse in you? Is the only reason maybe that you're following Jesus or is because He seems to be winning? Let me, let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. And this is, this is getting more difficult because we are at a time now in our society where the gospel message is not winning culturally and so it's harder to be a Christian in our society. And so when you see that, as you're facing that, as you're facing these difficulties where untruth is being wrapped in a package of, of truth and just common sense, is there a temptation in you to back away? Is there a temptation in you to retreat from your faith? One of the things that we know is that in some places, among some populations, church attendance is going down. And I actually, and a lot of other pastors, kind of view this as a good thing. Because what it's showing is that because of the cultural lines in our society, one of the things that we're really seeing is that those who are really following the Lord and those who are just maybe culturally hanging on because Christianity was winning at that time. Now, the reason I say this is good is not a nananaboo-boo, we don't want you in here. That's not what I'm saying. But it gives us clear dividing lines so that we know that if somebody is going away because culturally it's not safe anymore, it lets us know that we can go to that person with the gospel and try to win them with the gospel. It, it gives us a picture into their spiritual soul. But what I want to come back to and say is that I think this impulse is in all of us. That when the going gets rough, there's a temptation or an impulse to go somewhere else. Or... 
Or if we're maybe like Paul, where we've got a thorn in the flesh that God decides not to take away and God doesn't heal us from that affliction, will we be like Paul and say, nevertheless, glory be to God and keep going? Or will we retreat? Because the only reason we're there, the only reason we're there is for him to make our life easier. And that's never promised to us in the gospel. The third group, and this is only fitting that Mark in his summary, uh, that, you know, and he, he does this quite often, uh, that we get the unclean spirits, the demons. Verse 11, notice how the demons respond, and we've seen this response before. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And if you remember several months ago when we were talking about the Jesus casting out demons, we kind of went through some of the passages over and over again in the book of Mark where you see Jesus confront a demon and the demon uh, rightly knows their place and they shout and they scream and they squirm and they also, they also testify to the truth about who this Christ is. This title, the Son of God, in the book of Mark, is spoken by three people. God, not people, God, demons, and the soldier, the Roman soldier at the end of the gospel in chapter 15, when Jesus breathes his last breath and all the things had occurred, the Roman soldier, do you remember what he says? Truly, this was the Son of God. And here we have it on the the mouths of these demons. And, And one of the things that I want you to see and I don't understand what takes place in the, in the spiritual realm and the things that we can't see. But what we see is that these demons know who Christ is. That whatever they've seen, whatever they have heard, they accurately know who He is. Not only do they know who He is, they know who they are. They know that in His presence, with His power, their doom is sure if He wants to them right there. Why else would they beg? And why else would they scream? And why else would they take their posture? But they know, but but that they know. Now, I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Sometimes, we take the same posture as the demons. There's an impulse in us to not see Christ correctly. If we're Christians, there's an impulse to not see Christ correctly, but take the same posture as these demons. And what I mean by this is this. The Bible tells us things like this. You were once enemies of God, and such were some of you, but God, being rich in mercy, changed you. Last week, we looked at some verses that talked about that we were hostile, that we were alienated, we were enemies. But God, if you are a believer, you're not His enemy. You're one of His children. And so when we come face to face with God, when we come face to face with Christ in the Word, we don't need to shriek, we don't need to squeal, we don't need to scream. Now, you may be right in that moment of, oh, but Lewis, this sin, this burden, these thoughts. 
But as His child, what God is asking you to do is to take that and bring it to Him. Right? A child, a child doesn't need to be scared that his father is going to be so punitive with him as to destroy him. This father, this heavenly father, bids us to come and to bring our sin and to bring our shame and bring it to him. And when we bring that to the Lord, what do we get every time? Grace. But there's something in us, I think, that at times that we get so burdened down and so heavy that when we are confronted with the Christ in the Scriptures, that sometimes we act like these demons and we rightly say He's the Son of God. He's the all-power. He's the sovereign. And we're like, oh, get away, I'm unclean. And that's not what Christ bids us to do. You see, what we have to realize is that at times, these responses, when we are confronted with Christ, the true picture of who Christ really is, and His authority, that it's almost like an x-ray to our soul, or a scan that we're given. And your response to the authority of Christ shows the problem areas in your life. And if we don't, if we don't rid ourselves or root out some of these problem areas or some of these impulses that some of this indwelling sin still brings to us, then what happens is that we are rendered useless in His kingdom and we're rendered useless in the work that He has for us. It would be just like going to the doctor with a knee pain and the doctor saying there's nothing wrong with your knee and you choosing to drive around in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. The only difference in this illustration would be that you go to the doctor and the doctor says, give your burdens to me. That's not who you are. You're my child. Go and sin no more. But yet we walk away paralyzed or we just lay back down and say, oh. And you may say, Lewis, where in the world? Where in the world are you getting in this text that we are on a mission? I'm glad you asked. Notice something interesting. When the demons, when the demons are proclaiming that he is the son of God, what would you expect Christ's response to be? Now, remember, there are crazy amounts of people. They're all there. Do you think Christ would say, hey, demons, say it louder. Let them all hear. You're right. I am the son of God. Say it louder. That's not what Jesus does, is it? Jesus tells them to be silent. Why does Jesus tell them to be silent? Almost all commentators agree on why Jesus tells these demons to be silent. He tells them to be silent because He wants to be the one who is control of the message that the people are hearing. He doesn't want the message and the truth about who He is to come from demons. We understand that, right? Good. Watch this. He then went up to the mountain and he summoned those who he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him so that he could send them out to do what? He could send them out to do what? Preach to proclaim the gospel message. Now, what you might be saying, and hopefully if you know the Bible, you know that I'm being silly here. 
Jesus picked the best and the brightest of the bunch, didn't He? Isn't it fascinating? The crowds are there. Jesus silences the demons who are rightly proclaiming a truth about Him. And then we see Jesus turn around and pick 12 guys and sending them out to proclaim who He is. And remember, do the, do the apostles at this point have it all together? You remember, what's fascinating to me is that Jesus does this because Jesus has to take the apostles after He is resurrected and explain to them who He is one more time. The hope and the power that I see in this and that we read this morning is that post-resurrection, as the Holy Spirit has come to us, that Jesus tells us this, all authority is given to you, go and make disciples. And so what I take as I look at this passage and I look at these responses to Jesus and as Jesus chooses these 12 and sends them out, none of us are apostles. Don't hear me say that. None of us are apostles, but we all have a job to do. And as Jesus was sending out these apostles on this job to do, what we need to take from this as believers in Christ, He has saved us for a mission and our mission is to proclaim who Christ is. And some of you may say, Lewis, I stay at home with my kids. Your job in staying home with your kids is to proclaim who Christ is. Some of you may say, Lewis, I um, am single and I'm not around very many people, blah, blah, blah. And what I would say to you is your job is to the people that you are around to proclaim who Christ is in word and in deed. You are called for a purpose and a mission. And He, He, as the authority of the universe, gives us the power to do that. And all we have to do is to submit to who He is. And so one of the most important things that I think that we struggle with in the Christian life, all of us struggle with in the Christian life, is on a day-to-day basis, dying to self and allowing Christ to be the authority that He is. And when we do this, when we do this, it's like going to the good doctor. And He helps us to root out the bad stuff so that we can live in a way that we were meant to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would be a people on a mission for your glory, for your power. God, I pray that, Lord, if there are any impulses in us this morning, that as we think about Christ and who he is, I know there are ungodly impulses in me. God, I pray that you would break those impulses into pieces so that we would be a people who completely surrender to you. And who joyfully walk the path that you have set before us. God, help us today. Help us as we wake up tomorrow. To be the church. To be the people who proclaim the greatness of your son to a world that's in need. To a world that's in need of a savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
feel 